Welcome to the Gut Doctor Podcast, where Dr. Neil Parikh describes GI disorders and answers common questions related to the GI tract. Please note this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Parikh, and today we do another episode in the celiac disease mini-series. For this clinical discussion on celiac disease, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Sarah Canavan, who's one of the members of CTGI's Celiac Disease Center of Excellence. Sarah, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Neil, for having me on. So celiac disease is a big topic. And beyond this episode with you, I've uh, done one with Dr. Anshu Trivedi, a GI pathologist, and I previously recorded um, with Jamie Allers, the registered dietitian, to discuss the gluten-free diet. But today we're going to talk specifically about the clinical perspective of celiac disease. Uh, Sarah, what is celiac disease and what are the typical manifestations? So celiac disease is an autoimmune condition, and that means the body develops an attack on itself. And in the case of celiac disease, the attack is triggered by a protein called gluten. So Neil, when a person with celiac disease ingests gluten, there's a specific pattern of inflammation that develops in the intestine, and this can damage the absorptive surface of the bowel. We used to think of celiac disease in a patient who was malnourished and having horrific diarrhea, but now we know that celiac disease can have very mild symptoms and sometimes no symptoms at all. A common presentation in adults is iron deficiency anemia or even abnormal liver-associated blood tests. Right now, celiac disease is estimated to affect three out of every 100 people, and most of those celiacs don't know they have it. Wow, three out of every 100. So that, that makes a very common disease state. Um, celiac, so celiac is an immune response to gluten. How is that different than gluten intolerance, or is it really that different at all? Well, that's a great question, Neil, and there's a lot of confusion about this one. In a patient with celiac disease, gluten causes inflammation and bowel damage that can lead to a host of symptoms, but also vitamin deficiencies, bone loss, growth problems, among others. In gluten intolerance, gluten ingestion causes symptoms, typically bloating, diarrhea, and crampy abdominal pain, but there's not any damage to the bowel. And the latest term for this condition is non-celiac wheat intolerance, as it remains unclear if gluten is the only wheat component involved in non-celiac wheat intolerance. One newer thought has been that many of the non-celiac gluten intolerant group may be intolerant to a carbohydrate in wheat called fructan. Ah, fructans. We, we hear about this more often. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I've not um, heard about the term non-celiac wheat intolerance. So I'm going to go ahead and jot that one down right now. Um, let's get into a little bit of how we diagnose celiac disease. Uh, what is your typical diagnostic approach? Well, to me, Neil, the most important thing here is to test. I really hate the idea of missing celiac disease as that can place a person at risk of long-term bone disease and other problems. So in my practice, I do a ton of testing. I test everyone with diarrhea, constipation, bloating, iron, and other vitamin deficiencies or weight loss. And there are a lot of other diseases with celiac disease that are associated with celiac disease. And these people also need testing. So these are people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves disease, neuropathies, infertility, Down syndrome, 
and other autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis and autoimmune liver disease. So all of these patients need testing for celiac disease also. So, okay. So take home point is to test frequently and clearly for a variety of clinical presentations. For our medical audience here, is there one serologic test over another that you prefer? This has evolved over the years in a good way, Neil, because our blood testing now does a pretty good job of being positive in people with celiac disease and negative in people without celiac disease. The best initial testing strategy is blood testing for tissue transglutaminase antibody that we call TTG IgA and a total IgA level. It's important to be aware though that these tests are only reliable in a patient regularly consuming gluten. If someone has already eliminated gluten, a different strategy will be needed to avoid missing the diagnosis. Okay, so that's a critical point for patients to remember. C-like testing is most accurate when you are still eating gluten products. So once you have the positive serology, do you proceed next in endoscopy? And if so, what are you looking for in endoscopy? Yes, the next step is endoscopy in order to biopsy the first part of the small bowel called the duodenum. The classic textbook finding that you might see when looking at the small bowel is called scalloping. And that looks like an irregular, bumpy, and denuded surface. I see that look a few times a year, but much more often the small intestine in a patient with celiac disease looks normal to my eye. Yeah, and we touched upon this in the histology episode with Dr. Trivedi. Uh, often we may not see much endoscopically, but it's the biopsy that can help guide us. Again, I want to stress the point you made earlier about not stopping gluten before any celiac testing. Yes, and this really is a critical issue. Continued gluten exposure is necessary for accurate diagnosis of celiac disease. So please don't change your diet before the endoscopy. Once those biopsies are taken, you can start eliminating gluten and start healing the bowel. All right, so now your patient's diagnosis is confirmed by endoscopy and histology. What's next? Are there additional blood work or testing you do for conditions, or do you go straight to dietary changes? When celiac disease is diagnosed, it's recommended to send a host of vitamin and mineral blood tests to identify any deficiencies that need to be corrected right away with supplements. As the bowel heals and the body recovers on a gluten-free diet, those supplements will no longer be needed. In adults, we also do a baseline bone density study as often celiac disease has been present for years before the diagnosis is made. If osteopenia or osteoporosis is diagnosed, we can start treating that and prevent any further damage. I'm gonna write down that as well, baseline bone density study. You mentioned the body recovers on a gluten-free diet. When do you get your friendly dietitian involved? This should be involved right away, Neil. A gluten-free diet can absolutely be followed and learned, but it's not easy. And it does require a lot of learning and new habits with food preparation, storage, and eating outside of the home. And it's not just foods that celiacs need to watch out for. It's gluten and medications, cosmetics, unexpected food sources like soy sauce, and even the cooking environment at home and away. So it's really a total lifestyle change. Yes, I remember Jamie Allers also mentioned how it's a complete lifestyle change and not simply a, a diet change. How long do you typically expect it to take on a gluten-free diet before patients start to feel better? 
Typically after diagnosis, our first follow-up would be in three to six months where I'd expect to see some improvement in symptoms and any nutritional deficiencies that we identified. Then we meet again at one year where hopefully symptoms are resolved or nearly resolved. So if they're feeling better, is there any retesting they do at follow-up, like repeat blood work? Do you repeat the endoscopy? Yes, absolutely. So first at three to six months, one year, and then every year thereafter, we check the celiac antibody back to that tissue transglutaminase antibody we talked about earlier. That's the one that's elevated at diagnosis. We want to see this coming down and eventually normalizing. We're also going to repeat vitamin and mineral assessment at each visit and look for any additional supplementation that anything was deficient at diagnosis. So what if they're strictly following a gluten-free diet with the guidance of a registered dietitian and they're still not clinically improving? Well, this can be so heartbreaking and frustrating, Neil, but there is a way forward from here. The most common cause of non-response is inadvertent gluten exposure or contamination after cooking or food preparation. We start by reviewing everything again, including all medications and supplements. A product that was gluten-free can sometimes have a formulation or manufacturing change that can become a hidden source of gluten exposure. And even though most celiacs can consume oats that are not processed in a facility that processes wheat, in patients who are not responding, we remove all oats as well. Rarely, there is a condition called refractory celiac disease, and that means that despite complete avoidance of gluten, inflammation persists in the intestine. If this occurs, this can be treated with medications like steroids. And finally, there are other diseases like microscopic colitis that happen more commonly in celiac patients that can be a cause for symptoms even when the celiac disease has been improved. Well, Sarah, you just gave us material for additional episodes. We got refractory celiac disease and microscopic colitis now. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Sarah. This was great. For our medical and non-medical listeners, if you're interested in more information or wish to see one of our providers at CTGI's Celiac Disease Center of Excellence, please go to www.connecticutgi.org. And as always, thank you for tuning in. Thanks again, Sarah. Thank you, Neil. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gut Doctor Podcast. For additional information about today's topic, please visit connecticutgi.org. Your feedback is important to us, so please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Gut Doctor, and if you think you may need to see a gastroenterologist, let's trust your gut.